Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we have on the show Farida Nabarema. Now, Farida is a human rights activist and pro-democracy activist from Togo, and I really, really think you'll enjoy this conversation. Um, there is a lot to be hopeful for in this conversation, and honestly, conversations like this that talk about global humanitarian crises, regimes, and the need for good, hard money that's separate from corrupt governments is one of the best use cases for Bitcoin that I can think of to really talk to people on the left and progressives about, for them to really understand why are we advocating for Bitcoin? Why do we care so much about it? Well, Farida's story will give you an idea of why we're so passionate about this. Um, we get into her story, her background, a little bit of the history of Togo and its relationship with France and currency debates and, and all of these um, topics as well. We talk about politicians in the US and folks in very privileged positions that discredit Bitcoin and what that what that does and what that represents. So really hope you'll enjoy this conversation. And as always, if you have any questions at all, please feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. And please be sure to check out our promo links as well below for a Bitbox, for SAS Mining to get $50 off your miner, uh, mining with 100% renewable energy, and for Jason Meyer's book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin from Bitcoin Magazine as well. So be sure to check out all of those things and uh, enjoy the conversation and we'll see you again next week. Hi, Farida, and welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me, Trey. Absolutely. Uh, th this is an honor. I, um, you know, I've been following your work and alongside of what you've been doing in Togo and really around the world um, for a while now. And I think myself being in the U.S. and probably like a lot of folks over here, I, I believe I first heard about you probably through Alex Gladstein. And it's kind of one of the ways that I found out about Bitcoin originally as well. And something I'm excited to talk to you about is um, France, colonial currency. Those are the types of things that really got me interested in Bitcoin and even thinking about money and economics and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, before we go into the conversation, for those that don't know, you do want to give a little background to yourself, who you are, what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Farida Navarema. I am a citizen of Togo, I'm a writer I'm and an activist, a human rights activist, and also um, the the co-founder of the Africa Bitcoin community, which houses the Africa Bitcoin conference. Yeah. I know annually. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, so, I mean, I, we can take this conversation in so many different directions, but um, you know, one of the things I wanted to start off and talk to you about, it's, it's something that you probably speak about some of the most is um, just the global financial system, uh, Togo's relationship with France, a lot of uh, the program democracy work, that you're doing. And so for those that don't know the situation of, and first of all, I would encourage you all to, to go and we'll have everything in the show notes in terms of interviews you've done, TED Talks, papers, all of that sort of stuff that people can dig into. But for uh, you know a quick synopsis of, can you talk a little bit about the situation in Togo, um, kind of the ruling family party that you've been vo very vocal about, and the relationship to France? I think those are some of the things that I'd like to get into in terms of our audience and uh, this conversation. Um, thank you, Trey. Um, and it's it's been interesting that we're having this conversation right now, where the stakes are really high in West Africa. Um, Togo is uh, um, one of the um, is ruled by the oldest military regime on the continent, 
and the 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 current president um took over in a coup in 2005 after his father died and his father also took over in a coup um in 1967 and ruled the country for 38 years um and um what i find interesting is the fact that currently um, the countries in the West Africa regional bloc called the ECOWAS, Economic, Economic Community of West African States, are meeting to decide the fate of uh, a coup happening in Niger. Um, and uh, they are currently threatening war um, against Niger um, as the putsches um, um, have um, are literally being asked to return power to the civilian regime. Um, and uh, this follows the fact that in the past two years, we have had six successful coups in West Africa, most specifically in Francophone Africa, the former French colonies. Um, and um, for for people who don't have much political contest, um, they will see this as being a very scary trend, which makes sense, being in a situation where a few group of soldiers can wake up one day and remove the president from power and take over is alarming and is proof that the countries are not democratic. But there is a background to the story um, that people are lacking. That background is the fact that um, in the past um, almost 60 years, um, since 1963, because the very first military coup in Africa took place in Togo, um, the, the Francophone countries, meaning the former French colonies, have witnessed um, almost... Um, 40 coups um, 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 across the countries. Um, and the vast majority of these coups were carried by soldiers that were sponsored by the French government. Um, and this coup led to the removal of presidents that were elected by the citizen, democratically elected by the citizen, simply because these leaders were opposed to the continuation of French colonialism in their country. Um, and I will start by the case of my own country because this is really the genesis. Uh, my country, even even though in size we are one of the smallest on the continent, both in geographic size and population uh, wide, we are a country of eight million people. Initially, we used to be a German colony until nineteen forty until nineteen nineteen when Germany lost World War One. Then we were placed under the control of the British and the French, and uh, one third of our territory will eventually um, join the Gold Coast to form within-day Ghana. And the other two-thirds under French administration fought for independence and they got it. Um, two years down the line, after the independence, the Togolese government, even before that, um, the French government had this history of imposing um, uh, conditions to its colonies before letting them go. And this is something they started in Haiti back in the 1800s, where they forced Haiti to pay them back for every single Haitian civilian, Haitian citizen that was freed from slavery. They have to literally pay them for their freedom. So in the case of our countries, there was one, something called the colonial pact where we were required to refund French, everything they, in France, everything they invested in the colonies and more. Um, and this included the roads that were built by them, the schools that were built by them, um, 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 and any other facilities, even though for more than 100 years, our land, our farms were exploited uh, 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 crazily. Um, slavery was reintroduced, but then 
renamed forced labor because officially slavery was abolished. Um, our parents and grandparents grew up, you know, in working for the French for free and getting mutilated, having their hands and their legs chopped when they don't produce the yield needed and severely tortured when they opposed the French administration. But despite the fact that the French government um, collected a lot of resources for free, natural resources, human resources, for over 100 years, it still came with a list of deliverables on debts we owe to them. And um, they established what they call the Colonial Pact. The Colonial Pact included the fact that we must continue using a currency that the French government invented in 1946. Um, called the currency of the um, of the French um, colonies, uh, French African colonies, CFA, um, and that currency required then that we keep a hundred percent of our gold reserves in the Bank of France, that we have absolutely zero control over our monetary policy, so they decide when we can print more money or less, that we can only apply for loans from the French government if we need more resources uh, at the at a specific rate that they decide. And that, the, and that the value of our currency is determined by the French government so they can wake up any time and say we are devaluating it. And this they did on multiple occasions. Like people woke up in the morning and they were told their money is worth 100% less than the day before. And there is absolutely nothing they could do about it. And, and, and the most alarming part, and this is where it hurts um, a lot, is the fact that the CFA currency was an inspiration of a currency that Nazi created a currency model the Nazi imposed on France during the World War II occupation of France, where they were controlled, the Bank of France, where they were deciding on France's military policy, where they were deciding on the value of the French currency then, just so that they can make profit out of the French citizens. And the African nations contributed by over 300,000 people to soldiers to go to France and fight for the liberation of France. Um, these soldiers were abducted in their farms. They were not interested in becoming soldiers, but then they were abducted and forced into the French army. My mom's dad was one of them, or my grandfather on the maternal side. So realizing that the very people who helped you regain your freedom, the first thing you did after your freedom was implementing a system of oppression and exploitation that was used on you is, is, is the worst form of betrayal that there could ever be. But um, in the case of Togo, our president was asked to pay back every single dime that the French government invested in our colony. And we did, actually. He literally blocked more than half of Togo's national budgets, annual budgets, to refund France over two years. That's why we got our independence in 1958, but then the independence was not proclaimed. We voted for independence in 1958, but it wasn't proclaimed until two years after in 1916. But after doing that, he moved on to say, we don't want the CFA currency. We want our own independent currency. We are going to build our own um, central bank and we'll print our own money and make our own policies. Exactly a month after that dream, um, was passed as a bill by the Togolese parliament. The government of France sent soldiers, the same soldiers it used to fight in World War II and the war in Vietnam and the war in Algeria, sent some of these soldiers to the house of the president to assassinate him. 
they put in power after his killing his brother-in-law. Interestingly, the president's the, the brother to the wife of the president then was extremely a pro-French politician. They made him president. He restored all the policies under the French colonial rule. And four years after the assassination of the president, the people of Togo rose in a protest and in, a, in a, a big uprising saying, we didn't vote for you. You took over after a coup, replacing your brother-in-law. We want you out. Then the French government being scared that the independence leaders will come back in power, sent the same soldiers to do a second coup to remove the brother-in-law. And those soldiers now were given Togo to rule. These are soldiers that has absolutely no education. Most of them couldn't even write their names. And they were made presidents of Togo. And they ruled Togo with an iron fist for 38 years. And these soldiers never actually hid the fact that they were hired by France. In fact, they even went as far as telling us how much they were paid to kill our first president, which is the equivalent of today's $600. We went from having a president that was fluent in six languages, that was educated in Togo, Ghana, Austria, and, and, and the London School of Economics, that was the head of Unilever in Africa, one of the most brilliant guys in Africa in, 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 in the 50s and the 60s, to having a complete illiterate, a brute who took part in war, came back with a lot of PTSD, who spent 30 years putting us under the worst form of um, abuse one can think of. And, and by that, I mean... Living in a country where you have curfew by 7 p.m. every day and you can leave your home after that, otherwise you are arrested and you can be beaten to death. And it's happened to a lot of people, including one of my cousins. Um, living in a country where as students from primary school all the way to high school, in any public school, the teachers will come and tell you the president is coming back from a trip. You are going to the airport to welcome him. And then they empty the classrooms and you're going to the airport to welcome him. Living in a country where every morning going to school, uh, the soldiers will stop you because the soldier, the president is going to work and you all have to line up from the president's house to the president's office to clap for him when he's going to work, clap for him when he's coming back on lunch break, do the same thing when he's going back to work in the afternoon and again in the evening when he goes home. And then every Wednesday afternoon, having to practice to dance and sing for the president. And then on Sundays, going to the party headquarters, dance for him. You don't, your parents can go to jail, you yourself, you can get killed. Living in a country where, as a young girl, soldiers can pick any girl they want and give them to their officials to rape, including the president raping young girls, impregnating them with no consequences. That was our reality in that country. And the worst part of it is that you dare not get dissidents under the regime in Togo. Um, the dissidents face torture, unimaginable level of torture, with electric cords wrapped on their genitals. Their families also face torture. Um, sometimes if they can't arrest an activist that is in hiding, they go after his parents or his wife um, or his children just to get them to turn themselves in. Um, this happened over and over again. And probably one of the most traumatic times in our history in Togo was in, in the 90s, and, and this left a trauma that I think continues in the psyche of Togolese citizens until today. We have this lake in Togo that we call Lagoon de Bay. And soldiers confessed that they have killed 
activists and dump their bodies into the lake. And eventually, it was actually two activists that were missing that eventually the information came out that they were dumped in the lake. So the community members decided to organize a search of the lake by themselves and to hopefully retrieve those two bodies. First of all, to even check if it is true. And to the greatest horror of everyone, more than 30 cops were retrieved. Meaning there are many more that were in there that people were not aware of. Till today, almost every family member in Togo has a relative that was captured and disappeared that they have never heard of again, and you don't know how they were killed. And these people cannot even grieve. So today, when we see the coup happening in Africa, in some of those countries, it is actually the regime that were put in, in power and supported militarily and logistically by the French governments that are being removed. So there is this mixed feeling. As much as people don't want coup, can we blame them from feeling relieved that the people that have inflicted so much pain and abuse on them are being removed? You can say that. And in some of those countries, these leaders have died and new ones have replaced them. But it is the continuity of the new leaders to, it is the way the new leaders continue to reinforce French colonial rule, not trying anything whatsoever to cut ties with the existing uh, uh, um, economic um, deals that the French government imposed on us that is infuriating. When you look at the country like Niger, where the coup recently happened last week, Niger is the largest producer of uranium on the planet. Three out of four light bulbs in France are lit up by uranium from Niger. If France positions itself today as the leader of um, 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 nuclear energy, it is all thanks to the uranium of Niger. But guess what? The citizen, the, the government of Niger never got paid more than 6%, according to official data, of what the amount of uranium the French government collects and sells from Niger. In addition to that, the French businesses operating in Niger, like Areva, have been cited in very well investigated and documented cases of corruption, of grave environmental malpractice, which led to the entire pollution of numerous communities where people don't even have water anymore. And these are people already living in the desert where water is hard to find. And you have tens of thousands of people becoming displaced, developing severe illnesses such as cancer as a result of the pollution of their environment with uranium in a country that is considered the poorest on the planet that literally doesn't even have five hospitals on the whole territory able to cater for more than a thousand people at a time. And when these same citizens that, are, that have lost their only source of income because they live off livestock and agriculture and their source of income 
is destroyed. Their natural habitat is destroyed. When they choose to leave and cross the desert to try to go to Europe, they are called illegal immigrants. They are sent back and they are abused and they are dehumanized and they are humiliated. And nobody thinks about where they came from and what made them live in the first place. So it is a multi-level of exploitation that unfortunately continues to take place in different ways. One of the most appalling clauses of the colonial pact that the French government imposed on us is the first right of refusal on our natural goods and resources. So our countries produce gold in Mali, phosphate in Togo, uranium in Niger, oil in Chad and Gabon and, and Congo, um, first exporter of coffee and cocoa in, in Cote d'Ivoire, and so on and so forth, first exporter of bauxite in Guinea. Nonetheless, based on the colonial part, we can only sell it to France at a rate that is fixed by the French government. So literally, they have complete monopoly over the purchase of our resources. And they have full control over the prices of our resources. And mind you, it's not like if our citizens have been complacent and our leaders all throughout have sat and accepted but every single leader leading an African, a former French colony that opposed the system, said it was unfair and called for change, was toppled by a coup. Like I told you, we had more than 40 coups over the past 50 decades in French colonies alone. But we had more coups in French colonies than any other region on the continent. They get removed. So... The leaders that have stayed in power the longest have been the ones that have been in full support of French colonialism. And these leaders have been there for 57 years in my country, Togo, 56 years in Gabon, 40 years in Cameroon, 38 years in um, um, Congo, not, not DRC, but the Congo Brazzaville, um, and so on and so forth. 30 years in Chad. And the worst part is that activists like us from those countries, when we fight, we give our lives to the struggle. We literally live for the resistance. We invest, we have generations that have invested their entire life in this struggle. People from my dad's generation, now in their 70s and their 80s, they, I see them and I, I feel hurt because my dad went to prison the first time as an activist when he was in high school. And that was in the 1970s, early 70s. His father before him went to prison multiple times in the 50s and in the 60s. And I today... If I set a foot in my country, Togo, I will be in prison because I'm considered a dissident. For three generations, we have been fighting. And we are even among the luckiest because none of us, among my dad, my grandfather, were killed. They were luckier 
even though my dad went through a crazy torture, such as having his genitals wrapped to electric cord and having all his toes smashed by hammers, he survived. But most families lost their, their, their loved ones. We had counselors of brilliance, Togolese engineers, Togolese doctors, Togolese writers, Togolese teachers that were killed in the most horrible type of ways simply because they denounced the regime and they asked for change. And some of them, we cannot even grieve because we don't even know how they died. And that's the, that's the worst part, sitting down and asking yourself, how did a person die? And waiting endlessly with no response because you can never have closure. It's, um, it's all prices we are paying. And, and that's what people don't understand. All these sacrifices, years of protest, years of killing, torture, abuse, exile, that thousands of people go through in my country, hundreds of thousands when you go to other countries, all these efforts invested just because we want monetary freedom. So sometimes people live in countries like the US or Canada or even France and they don't know what is happening elsewhere. They are born in countries where their money is controlled by their government. They know they can put money in the bank and wake up and find it there. They can put a hundred dollars there. The next day it will still be worth a hundred dollars. Um, they know monetary policies are decided by their federal bank. And when their politicians messed up, they can just go and vote them out. And they sit down and they look at Bitcoin and they're like, that thing is so useless. It's just a gamble. To some extent it is. But for people in our countries, that is our only hope. It doesn't mean that all the resistance leaders or activists in our countries know about Bitcoin or understand it. But for those of us who do, it gives us faith again in this struggle. Because we tell ourselves that we can have a way out. Because one of the answers that we have received over and over again from those who support the continuity of the colonial system and the monetary system is that, well, there's no alternative. Um, before you can change the system, you have to remove these regimes. You've been trying for 30, 40, 50 years, you're not succeeding. So you're just wasting your time and wasting your resistance. But now those of us who know about Bitcoin, we're like, we don't have to wait to remove them from power before we start using a different money. And we don't need everybody to use that money, but we just need enough people to know there's an alternative and to start using it. And Bitcoin comes with a lot of advantages, but a lot of risk as well. But the risk that you are taking in using the CFA and other colonial currencies far outweigh the risk of losing five to 10% or 20% of your money in Bitcoin overnight. And there is this sense of freedom 
to just know that by using Bitcoin, you are not literally paying taxes that are going to be used to fund your repression. But by using the CFA, you yourself, you are paying for your own torture, abuse, and silencing. So you are literally funding your own oppressor knowingly, and you have absolutely no agency. And, and, and that is the worst way of dehumanizing people when you make them pay for their own abuse. Hi, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now, Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use. And it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now, I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now you can purchase the BitBox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank BitBox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. I mean, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast and this podcast exists is because, I mean, first and foremost, there's a lot of in the US, specifically US context, and in some Western nations as well, um, there's a lot of like, fear and anxiety around Bitcoin and a lot of opposition to it for environmental reasons, labeling it as it's useless or it's for criminals, this kind of thing. And the community and a lot of the media out there is in the US context, more right-wing leaning, libertarian leaning, things like that in terms of the media that's out there. So first and foremost, this exists to educate people on Bitcoin. But even more interestingly, so the way you're talking about as well as the way I view it, where Bitcoin is a tool, but it's not the end the end and the things we talk about is freedom, right? And and that's kind of the thing. So we get into environmental conversations, conversations like this about problems that exist with governments and colonialism and all of that. Those are the things I'm most interested in talking about. Bitcoin just happens to be a tool that can be used to get around this or to not be a part of this in some specific way. Uh, but as, we, as you were talking, all I could think about too is that, you know, just as... Unfortunately, so let's say Bitcoin is being used in, in Togo, right? If the U.S. has politicians, and I'm here in Massachusetts, so one of my politicians is Elizabeth Warren. I try not to mention her every podcast, but it just happens. Um, because she kind of fought a lot of the big banks, greed, Wall Street, all of this during the Occupy movement, right? And then now is one of the biggest proponents against Bitcoin. Well, her and many others being against Bitcoin in the U.S. and trying to prop up and, and squash it ultimately can then affect um, Bitcoin's use globally. It, it can and it can't, right? People can still use Bitcoin. I think in the end, Bitcoin can be used. Bitcoin will win all of these things, right? But in the US, Elizabeth Warren saying it has no utility or that it's just evil, right? Then you hearing this or anyone else in Togo who might be using it, they're like, are you kidding me? Like, this is better than what we've been using. Like, how can you, Senator, say this you're not in my shoes in my position. Like, how dare you speak for me by doing that? It's the same thing the French do, right? In a lot of ways, like their decisions are affecting you all when it's like, just, just stop. Can we just have our independence? Can we have these basic rights? And it's very similar in terms of this conversation around Bitcoin, but I can't, because I can't help but draw those parallels where decisions being made by folks in DC 
who are fine, have millions of dollars, nice homes, book deals, lifetime politicians, all of this stuff um, are deciding things that affect folks around the world. Um, and that's really tiring. And I've heard you say this in other interviews before, you know, you, I, I couldn't, but it, obviously you're waking up every day and you're having these types of conversations, right? <laughs> through, through interviews and stuff. And it's, it's gotta be exhausting. Um, and like you said, generations, you're seeing similar things happening over and over again. So, I, I mean, I, I appreciate you sharing this, um, you know, and sharing your story and sharing about this. Cause I think folks everywhere need to hear this folks in the U S need to hear this, but you know, progressives or left-leaning folks, when they, when they think about currency, when they think about Bitcoin, when they think about, you know, the environment, globalism, all of these things, these are things probably 95% of, you know, the U S doesn't think about or doesn't know about. So you just getting this story out, I think is, is very, very important. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention too. So, you know, in terms of Bitcoin use in Togo, what, first of all, when did you start kind of knowing more about Bitcoin or kind of seeing it as, as an option? Um, when I started hearing about Bitcoin, that was from right when Bitcoin literally was created. And then at some point it became a big topic early 2011, but I never really paid much attention to it. You know, um, like the vast majority of people who don't know about Bitcoin, the moment they hear about it, it's either they believe it's a scam, rightfully so, or they, um, they think it's something that only geeks can understand because it's very tech. Um, and um, it's, it's when you are in a situation of necessity that you find solutions. Um, um, and uh, in our case, in 2017, we started having mass protests in the country till 2018. Then we had situations where our countries started getting arrested and questioned over um, conversation they had in very secretive platforms, um, like on WhatsApp and groups that we knew nobody infiltrated. So it rose our attention immediately. We left the platforms, we changed our phones, we assumed we were being, you know, um, we were being um, spied on. But then the worst part came when people who donated money to the movement started going to prison and charged with funding terrorism because the government considers um, political dissidents against them as terrorism. So alternatively, we went back to the old days, which was sending money to a neighboring country like Ghana, having some bad travel all the way to Ghana, collect the money in cash, travel back to Togo. It's costly, it's not effective, and it's also dangerous because the person crossing could also get caught. So it was in the process of finding solutions to the issue of surveillance about reducing surveillance in terms of communication, how the template for communication, and also how to send more money more anonymously that I started looking more into Bitcoin and I heard it was an alternative. Then I still had zero technical knowledge of it. I needed a tool. I looked into it. Then I found out how it worked to send and receive and convert. And I started teaching it to a few people that I know. And we started using it just like that. 
Now, early on, sorry to interrupt the the conversion, right? So how how is that working? Because obviously, when you first tell people about Bitcoin, they're like, "Well, I want to use some some money to." They're they're not they're not like throwing it in their like four hundred one k portfolio or something like that. Back in the days, you could only sell it pair to pair. People who were interested in buying, that was the only way. Then there were some platforms that came up that made it easy for them to sell it differently and collect cash for it, you know. But I was still hesitant to go to the general public with the information on Bitcoin for two reasons. Number one, I was afraid that uh, maybe if I reveal this, the government will find a way to shut it down because I didn't have much knowledge of the technical aspects. I thought it could be shut, it, it could be shut down, you know. Um, so I was like, okay, let me keep this secret for us, our groups that, that work as activists so that they don't close this avenue. Then, randomly, I started just wanting to know more about it and reading about it. And in my efforts to even read about it, and, and wanting to read about it came from the fact that I had to explain it to people that I was onboarding or that I was sending money to this way. And because I didn't have much understanding of it beyond the fact that this is how you receive and get it, it was difficult. <laughs> So I needed to go get the knowledge to be able to explain it. And it took me, I will try and experience difficulties. Then, you know, at some point I said, you know what, just go back to the very basics. Go back to the very basics. Go and read about cryptography. (laughs) Then read about the, the white paper, understand it. Then understand why the blockchain was created and how it was created so you can explain it. And going through that reading was like a revelation. And the idea that those people who, or the person, whoever it is that is Satoshi Nakamoto, when they came up with Bitcoin, it was a money that was meant for liberation. So philosophically we even align because I believe in people's revolution um, liberation from all oppressive systems and I know the role that banks and governments play in keeping people in bondage but the most amazing part is that trying to learn about Bitcoin led me to understanding money because I've never before that been taught what money is. Beyond it is something you use to buy something. So when people couldn't get the idea that money could be digital, <laughs> I try to break it down to them saying, it's the same way picture can be digital. Maybe our grandparents 50 years ago wouldn't be able to understand that. Yeah, and it's about consensus among the users that this is money. So the moment we, as the users in the community, we say we accept this pen as money and it's going to be worth this, then that pen literally becomes our money. So breaking down money, the different forms of money, and how money could be digital and how money could be physical and making people even understand that when they write a check, technically it's not money, it's a promise that money will be paid. 
it broadens everybody's mind like, whoa, how come nobody told us that? Because nobody needed us to know. But in the process of educating people, I also got to a point where I realized one thing. People are, and that's the, that's the same thing goes to Senator Warren. And as much as I am someone who is very much on the left side, um, a lot of politicians base their policies on emotion, not fact. And most of the time, they lack data and understanding. If you sit down, Senator Warren, and you ask her to explain Bitcoin to you, I bet she won't be able to. <laughs> you ask her to describe 10 characteristics of Bitcoin, I bet she won't be able to. The reality is that those there's, there's, there are people who are losing out of Bitcoin becoming a universal money. They are invested a lot in anti-Bitcoin marketing, producing countless of baseless articles, how Bitcoin is dangerous for the environment. But then when you compare the amount of energy that goes into printing money, transporting money, distributing money, it actually consumes 30 times more energy than just using Bitcoin. People don't even realize that when they go to the ATM and collect cash, it's actually energy because the ATMs are hooked to power. They don't realize that the banks that they visit, they use electricity, they use human resources, they use paper, and it's also footprints. They don't realize that the transportation of cash costs money. The printing of the cash costs money. They don't even realize what they are talking about because they are just told this thing is produced with electricity. It costs a lot of money. But then you have to compare the two to realize that in the end, you know, it's like literally, you know, they say Bitcoin is for cash, literally what emails are to um, uh, uh, um, um, PO boxes. And believe me, 30 years ago, when people started using emails, there were some people who came with severe climate concerns that now that people are going to start using email, we'll be using more electricity by using computers. <laughs> And they were discouraging the world from going uh, 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 online. And the same people 10, 20 years down the line came back and are recommending people go paperless. Don't print your mails anymore. <laughs> don't, don't send mail papers. Um, get your statement electronically. You're saving the world. Yeah. The banks are who are funding oil spills Absolutely. are the ones saying sign up for email yes. instead. So yeah. literally... The fear comes from ignorance. Ignorance, first of all, about how Bitcoin works. And then ignorance about how Bitcoin is used. In the context of many developing nations, and I'll go back to my country, Togo, more than 50% of our populations don't, actually 70% of our population don't have a bank account. It's not even just that they don't have a bank account. They will probably never have a bank account till they die. Why? Because the model established to have bank accounts came from the colonial era 
the criteria don't align with our realities. For you to have a bank account in Togo, and it's the same in multiple countries in Africa, you need an address. Most of our houses don't even have addresses. Our streets, many countries are not even named. Like we don't have street names. We don't have addresses. So we don't have an address. You need a PO box. And it's only the elite that has a PO box to start with. And then you need a pay stop. And more than 80% of our people work in the informal sectors. They don't get paychecks. And then you need an ID. And more than 50% of our people cannot have IDs because they never had a birth registry and they have no birth certificate. And they can't even prove that they are citizen and they exist. So these people, over the years, they have been completely excluded from banking. And they have developed their own alternate ways of banking. You have systems like Susu or Tontin where people put money together and they take turns in collecting them. That's how they raise money to fund their businesses. You have community saving projects. People alternatively bank communally in their community because they can't use a traditional bank. The traditional bank is still very much for a specific group of people, the elite. So... For these people, actually, when you go to them and you explain Bitcoin to them, they tend to get it even more easily than those who are not excluded from the banking system because they cannot get their struggle. They can't understand it. You know, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's literally sometimes when you are too privileged, it's hard for you to understand struggles people face. And politicians have this way, especially politicians that are on the left, even though I am a leftist. Politicians on the left, their main duty is to make the people feel like they put them first. So they try to put themselves in the shoes of the people as much as possible. But sometimes they need to understand that some of them are born with certain privileges that no matter how hard they try to put on those shoes, it will never fit. Senator Warren can never understand the realities that people in the global world are facing because she can never, she has never lived through that. And it will require a lot of intellectual humility to sit down, listen to these people and learn from them. So I was thinking that politicians on the left have a sort of moral obligation to appear like they are close to the people, they look like the masses they are representing, they sound like them, they share lived experiences. But what I'm saying is that sometimes as much as you try to fit in and to put yourself in the shoes of the people, some will never fit because you don't come from those experiences. It requires a huge level of political awareness and intellectual humility to sit down, listen to those people, and learn. Um, and sometimes politicians, I've met politicians that don't want to hear about Bitcoin, not because they don't know about Bitcoin, because they're already convinced Bitcoin is bad. And because they're convinced Bitcoin is bad, they are even afraid of discovering Bitcoin is not bad. So they don't they would rather just not hear about it and continue growing in their ignorance 
than discovering the truth because they feel like, okay, if they discover the truth, they will have to go back and unsay everything they said. <laughs> and 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 they are afraid for their their own track record. And they and they know there are still a lot of ignorant people out there. If they openly come back and support money that most of their supporters are still not supporting, then it's gonna make them look like they are traitors. So they'll rather wait for the masses to get to the same level of knowledge before they can now openly come back and say we support Bitcoin. So for me, the priority is mass education. And then the politicians, they will follow. And and as for those who will say, you know, I cannot use bit, I don't want to use Bitcoin because I don't really know how it works. My point is simple. Bitcoin is beyond speculation. In fact, the vast majority of people who speculate are pretty well off. Um, in most part of the world, people don't even have a hundred dollars to be paying to be playing um, um, games with. So, but for most people, it's not about speculation. It's about getting money in and out, moving money from one point to point B. It's about trading locally without going through multiple hurdles. It's about avoiding government censorship and punishment and control over your money. So those are very simple user cases. And I tell people, you don't have to know how a car engine works before you learn to drive it. You can start driving it. And then if you're passionate about engineering, then you go and find out how the engines work. And I bet you most people who drive cars don't know how the engines work. Otherwise, what is the mechanics? So it's a beautiful thing to be more invested on the technical aspect of Bitcoin. But for now, it is solving people's problems more than it is causing problems. And these problems are existential. You have entire nations in Africa that have been blacklisted from the world banking system because some terrorists there did some bad things. Unfortunately, because a couple of terrorists committed um, atrocities, tens of millions of people cannot access money. They are literally the victims of these terrorism, but they are the ones punished for it. Countries like Somalia, for example, countries like Palestine, for example, countries like Yemen, for example, you can send money there. Then you have countries that are at war where all the banks are closed, but people still have to live there. They have families and you cannot send money to them. They can send, they can receive, they can trade. And Bitcoin is giving them a way out. <coughs> so literally, it's a lifeline for many of pe- many people out there. Yeah, I think one of the most frustrating parts still for me remains just what I'm saying, What that it, it's it's that new, like colonialism always finds a way, right? There's this new era of colonialism with the US or with, with France continuing today, like you're describing. And again, people making decisions from their point of privilege for other people. And even if Bitcoin wasn't as environmentally conscious and friendly as it is, it's it's arguably at this point, we have enough data to say it's pro- most likely, if not the single most renewable, sustainable industry, if you can call it an industry in terms of those that are mining Bitcoin globally, right? We're talking 50 to 60% we're getting up to. 
the U.S.'s infrastructure is like at best in any best numbers, 25 to 30%. And that's not really, uh, it's probably closer to 20% renewable energy resources. So you're talking about ATMs, banks. I just thought about, yeah, they're probably hooked up to oil and coal. Um, so they, the banking infrastructure, like it's not even anywhere close. Um, and so for me, I want to bring up a point too, because I've heard you say it in other interviews about just like evangelizing on Bitcoin. And there's so many different approaches to it, right? Like some, some folks in Bitcoin, especially in the US will say, ah, oh, well, like screw the politicians, let's focus like bottom up, right? And some people are like, we have to talk to the politicians. There's all these different approaches to evangelizing around Bitcoin. But it is tough. Uh, I, I do think they're running out of answers and responses to it, especially on the left in terms of like environmental stuff. I think the past year or two has been really good in terms of um, environmental arguments for Bitcoin and kind of the data that's coming around that, which is really good. Um, I think they're running out of answers to use against Bitcoin. And it's really sad. And the one thing I'm still genuinely confused by when I take a step back is, you know, when we think of friends or family or people in this world outside of politics who they have a belief and then they later on admit that was either wrong or incorrect. I apologize or I learned new information and now I'm on board with XYZ. We usually applaud those people. We're like, that's great. You like learned, apologized, and adapted. That's a really good quality to have like for, for people. But for politicians, somehow the media punishes them. They're worried their party will punish them. So they never do it. But I think voters would appreciate that. So I'm still confused to this day why there's just no inherent um, ability to be honest um, or apologize or say, hey, I've changed my mind in in politics globally, but in, in the U.S. context. And I, I think that's one of the the hardest parts right now. Um, but but for you, when you think about, you know, I hate the term, but like Bitcoin evangelism or talking to to folks about Bitcoin, um, you know, I like some of your your approaches on it that you've mentioned before. But how do you approach talking to people about Bitcoin and for lack of better words, like who is it like not worth talking to, right? You've mentioned like different politicians and different folks, right? Um, so when people are thinking about, you know, their own journey, they're hearing about Bitcoin. It's like, how do you, how do you talk to people about it? And, you know, what, what, is, what is your approach to it in terms of different audiences? I have a Bitcoin education program right now. Um, some for young people, which we call Bitcoin for youngsters. And some for students, uh, sorry, um, some for farmers, um, which we call the Kisao project. And Kisao means farming in one of the um, ethnic groups' language, uh, ethnic languages in spoken in Togo and Ghana. Um, for those, we have built programs meant to educate these people. For the young people, because we want to spark their curiosity, because we know. Bitcoin will be their money. And by young people, I'm talking about secondary school students. And this year, I'm super proud to say that we have trained more than 3,000 on Bitcoin. Yes. And and for us, because we want, we want them to be carrying this forward and to have the curiosity to know that there is a field in Bitcoin, that they can even expand their knowledge in Bitcoin. They can even have a career in in Bitcoin, they can build businesses around Bitcoin, and it would they should not limit themselves to the current world and the current monetary system. For the farmers, we want them to know that there's an alternate economic system out there that does not exclude them like the bank. Because in our countries, when I say that 70% of the people are bank, 
the for the rural populations actually is 95%. So only 5% of farmers in my country have bank account. And for those 5% that don't even have bank account, it's like those farmers that are really, really doing well. Like they're, those are the bougie farmers. <laughs> so the vast majority of farmers are excluded. And these are countries where more than 60% of the population are actually farmers. And they can never have a bank loan. They can never have student loans. They can, and they struggle. Uh, um, uh, um, more than 80% of our farmers are small-scale farmers, and they don't even own more than two acres of land. And to even farm those two acres of land, they struggle because they don't have money for seeds. They don't have money for fertilizers. Almost all, any other sector, um, business owners, teachers, can get some small loans from the bank. To, to, to support them. Farmers really can. They almost never can. Apart from a few humanitarian projects I'm hearing, they supported them. They have nothing. And char- farmers don't want to spend their entire life depending on the charitable actions of in multi- international institutions that will say, oh, we have this program to help farmers and we dash you these resources and then maybe we come back 10 years later. They, they just want infrastructure to be able to be financially independent and take it from there. These are people who are already hardworking. So we go to them with Bitcoin education and we launch the program to allow them to collect loans in Bitcoin. And you should see a smile on their face. For them, it was amazing for them to be able to just receive money just like that uh, without having to show an ID. And for us... It's a way for them to know this is possible. And we linked them with fertilizers and seed vendors that can accept Bitcoin as a payment. And them too, we have to orange peel them because you have to build a circular economy, right? So my education approach is that I invest in educating people who need Bitcoin the most. And those people are never hostile to learning because they have nothing to lose out of it anyway. And in addition... They have no alternative, not much alternatives anyway. So it is people who have limited alternatives that are more eager to learn. And the other groups of people that I educate actually come to me willingly saying, we've seen you talk about Bitcoin a lot. You still do work about Bitcoin a lot. Can you teach us? I've had activist groups come to me, NGOs come to me, schools come to me, individuals, businesses come to me. We want to know about Bitcoin, uh, friends, family. So because they came and asked, they come with a more open mind and they gladly learn. But I am not a Bitcoin evangelist. I tell myself, I will not wake up and force people who don't want the knowledge to learn by all means. It only revolts people even more when you do that. But when they start seeing beautiful realizations achieved by bit, through Bitcoin, they themselves want to know more. And our actions with the good work we are doing with Bitcoin speak louder than any course you can teach them about Bitcoin. It is because they are seeing these people are doing something great with Bitcoin that they come and say, we also want to know more. We also want to be part of this. And they are, they are often very fascinated. And my advice to people who do education is that 
before you start educating people about Bitcoin, especially adults in urban areas that have probably read over 100 articles on why Bitcoin is going to lead us to the end of the world, you start with Bitcoin miseducation before you start with Bitcoin education. You, you, you identify all the key myths about Bitcoin and you teach them. I'm sure you have heard about this, about Bitcoin. Check. Now, this is why this is untrue. I've sure you heard this about Bitcoin. No, this is also untrue. You have to free their mind from all the misconceptions before you put in new information. And why do I choose to do it this way? It's because if you don't, they'll stop you every second because they are listening to criticize. They're not listening to learn. <laughs> but when you disconstruct all those myths, then they become curious. So if it is not all of these things they said it was, then what is it? And when they start learning about it, they're more receptive. Yeah, I. you're talking about education. I did. I keep thinking back to it. Have you have you heard or had any experience? And this was this was prior to to Bitcoin, but um, they do a lot of like influencing and activism out of London. But Earthrise Studio, are you familiar with them at all? I heard about it, but I've never. Um... Yeah, well, this is a whole nother episode. We'll probably have to do at some point. But it, it's it's environmental activists, and I per, I have a lot of mixed feelings on this, right? Especially after getting into Bitcoin, and I'm sure you might feel similarly. I'm trying to think at the end of the day, what's making the biggest impact and making a difference, right? Let's say the environment, for instance, like climate change and global warming continues to get out of hand. All we hear is how hot the global South is getting, how hot our summers are in the US, um, in the UK, things like this year after year, right? And then we also hear about, okay, we need to spend $9 trillion from these governments. They fly on their private planes, they meet, they talk. They're saying, we're going to invest this number of dollars, but China keeps doing its thing. The US keeps doing its thing. We have different protests and activists um, posting on social media about how bad the climate is getting and things like this. And, you know, the data says we're continuing in a, in a really bad path, right? So basically, what is actually being done, right? You know, there's a lot of social media warriors, a lot of people like that, that it can be frustrating, right? Because you don't know people's intentions. You don't know, are they just wanting to be an influencer and have followers on Instagram, whatever the case may be. Um, so all that to say, Earthrise Studio is um, a group in London, and, and I hope may, maybe I can get this this podcast out in front of them. They do a lot of activism. I think they had a panel with with Greta and several others recently in London. Um, but they do a lot of work in activism uh, around the world, but they're based out of London. And I've actually kind of written to them and messaged them a few times about, have you taken a look at Bitcoin? Like, just, just look at it, right? Because there's a lot of people that like follow them on social media and things like this. And um, I think that would be be pretty cool. But there's a lot of different groups that, again, they are firmly in the camp of. I, I haven't seen them outright speak against Bitcoin yet. Um, I feel like they might head that way. Um, I think they're very closely tied to Greenpeace and communicating with them. So that's probably not a great start. So for folks like them, that's why I asked. I'm like, they would be a good group to let's let's start with the miseducation. Um, they would be a good group. But I guess for you, has there been any any groups or folks, you don't have to mention any names, but any folks that you've kind of talked to that were that have been activists, whether it's climate activists, humanitarian activists, um, pro-democracy activists that were really against Bitcoin or, or maybe didn't understand and that are pro-Bitcoin or understanding money more, right? Like you had mentioned. Yes, there's so many of them, actually. Um, but um, 
even more in Africa, Asia, Latin America than in Europe. Maybe because I maybe because I haven't really been in a lot of article activist circles in Europe and um in America. But the thing is that a lot of those activists what they have in common is shared experiences of oppression, governments' oppression and censorship. So they too were looking for solutions anyway. And um, when they find out that Bitcoin can give them this solution, they embrace it. Um, I have countless of activists who went from not knowing much about Bitcoin to wanting to be more interested. And for the Africa Bitcoin conference that I um, and my colleagues um, build, we bring activists there. Um, we had received support from organizations like Human Rights Foundation to fund the travel of activists from different countries to join us. And for most of the activists we had present, they had no knowledge about Bitcoin. But then coming there opened their mind about it. And they 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 went from, I have no idea what this is, to when do we get started? How can we set us up? How can you, like, they really, really, really want it and they have started using it. Um, some have even gone as far as creating Bitcoin education programs already in their countries. So, yes, it's happening very fast. It's happening at a, at, um, at the speed of light. Yes. Yeah, and that's probably what gets me most excited is I think on some of my... I don't want to say like darkest days, but, but thoughts around around Bitcoin and just the state of whether it's politics in the U.S. or these kind of troubles that are specific to the U.S. context. I think about some of these like Bitcoin education programs, like you're describing in Togo and some of these other places, and I'm like, they are like you didn't have to, you had to learn about money, like you said, but you already started off seeing the worst of what government could do. You already knew about hyperinflation. You already knew about all of these things. The U.S. we don't have a context for that, right? But the scary part is inflation in these politics is getting bad in the US. It's nowhere near what you've been describing. But the people that actually control the monetary supply, they're messing it up so bad that even those troubles are starting to come to the US, to France, to Europe. That's how incompetent um, these leaders are. Like they are the, 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 uh, the oppressive global regime and they're, they're messing it up for their own people. Um, again, only benefiting the, the top percent. But it, for me, what you described, like these Bitcoin education programs and making sure that Bitcoin can be used by the people that needed to use it to just send money. And you said in a recent interview, and I'm forgetting which one, that you talked to your dad about Bitcoin. And I'm not sure when. It was probably early on, I'm sure. But I think you mentioned his, one of his first reactions was kind of getting it in the sense of like, oh, the government can't seize it. I, I want to know more. Like, almost like I'm in. Like, that sounds great. Whereas the U.S., you have to intellectualize everything. You have to because these people don't have those same problems. Um, so that's that was incredible to hear. Just even that story of like he got it and wanted to be a part of it because you know he knew the 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 struggle, the struggle that you inherited it as well. Mm -hmm. And and like I said, I am totally fine with somebody who is in who is in the United States not wanting anything to do with Bitcoin, not wanting Bitcoin. I'm fine with it. Because in the end, you if you're American, you don't even need Bitcoin 
You don't need to have Bitcoin. It is nice to have money that is inflation-proof, that is fluid, that can um, uh, 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 be moved easily and fast. And but you can still use the dollars and you know lose five, ten percent of its value every year, and you will not find yourself in a situation where you don't have a meal a day. You'll still be fine. The likelihood of you finding yourself in a situation where you have to run from the U.S., sell all your properties within 10 hours because a war just broke, are so little. The chances are almost inexistent. So when you live in stable economies and you live in countries that have some level of peace and stability, you, you, don't, you don't have to take chances with money. It's a plus to take chances with money. It's a plus to have alternatives, but it is not um, mandatory for you to live a fulfilling life. But those who live in countries where, it's like a country like Venezuela or Argentina or Zimbabwe, where inflation rates is like by over 100% and their currency depreciates by the hour, um, and you want to go and buy a cup of tea and you and, and, and 20 minutes later, the price has changed already because the currency has depreciated. You will have no other option but to seek solutions. Or you find yourself in a country like Sudan and where out of nowhere, war just broke and you have to leave your country with anything you can. And you carry the risk of if you carry cash, that's if you can even get the cash. If you carry cash, you can be robbed on your way trying to flee and, and, and deprive of all of your, your resources. If you can buy Bitcoin, save your money on a wallet and exit and go to any country and claim your Bitcoin and start a new life, you will do that. If you can have your relatives send you money through Bitcoin within minutes so that you can pay people to help you get the hell out, you will do that. So Bitcoin, Bitcoin is actually... The thing is, people who need Bitcoins will always use Bitcoin. And to be honest, people who don't want Bitcoin don't even need Bitcoin. And Bitcoin doesn't need them either. Yeah, I think where I get the most frustrated is, and we, we've been alluding to it and saying it, is when those who do, don't need Bitcoin or want Bitcoin, that that's fine. Just stop getting in the way or trying to say you want to help people while also saying arbitrarily things that are just false or inaccurate about Bitcoin or about anything else, right? Bitcoin is is what it is today, um, but it could be something else in the future that might actually help people, right? It's it's a place of privilege. It's a politician who's uh, seeking out a career in politics. And, you know, I've had conversations like this on this podcast too, where, you know, Bitcoin won't fix everything. I want to be clear about that. There's a lot of power struggles and a lot of corruption and greed and evil in this world that Bitcoin will not fix, right? And so there's some of these like power struggles, like Bitcoin will not fix the fact that maybe we should have term limits uh, for our politicians in the United States. Uh, maybe we should try to separate money a little bit more from politics in the United States. Um, these corrupt interests and things like that. It won't fix those things, right? But it opens up your worldview to seeing what is money, what all of these other things, right? And we'd be surprised. Maybe Bitcoin does fix some of these things. But right now, it's it's only 14 years old still. It's it's a completely paradigm-shifting um, 
monetary unit. So we don't know what's going to come. But what we've seen already and the use cases that you're describing, hopefully there's some people listening to this podcast that still know very little about Bitcoin or, or kind of assume some of these things that you've been disputing. Just see the use cases around the world. Start there. Like you don't have to buy it. You don't have to. We're not. No one's going to force you to do it. Um, you don't. You don't have to. But please do know the good things that it's doing around the world. I think that's got to be a good starting place for people. Right, and you know, some of these people sometimes you can't blame them. Um, their only source of um, information is mainstream media. Um, Bitcoin is extremely vilified in mainstream media. Deep down, they mean well for humanity by thinking Bitcoin is harming humanity. And people only respond to uh, um, to what they, they are exposed to as information. So it is important to continue doing work like the one you're doing to help get the message out there, to educate people, to help people discover um, about Bitcoin, to take Bitcoin knowledge to some of the most random communities um, that probably wouldn't even know why Bitcoin exists. Because... Um, that's when we will start really creating a very diverse community. If we also only take Bitcoin knowledge to a specific type of people working in a specific sector, <coughs> having the same profiles, then we will not have the Bitcoin change we need. Maybe Bitcoin change could start, um, Bitcoin adoption in the US could grow from with American farmers <laughs> or um, people living in... Uh, 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 in the project, um, literally going to those who tend to be the most excluded from um, 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 the financial world is, is, I believe, the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another uh, episode that I'm not sure the order quite yet, but I uh, have, have talked with Justin Redrick, um, who who was formerly incarcerated in the U S and he's trying to start a program that's about like re-entry education for prisoners, um, in the United States around Bitcoin. So there are a lot of populations in the U S that would really be interested in hearing about Bitcoin. Even the statistics of you try to parse out crypto versus Bitcoin usage, but a lot of times it's kind of lumped together, but the statistics in terms of actual usage of, of Bitcoin in a peer to peer way, and those who own it are much higher for the Latino community, for African-Americans in the U.S., things like that. And that's that's for a reason. Um, a lot of these communities, like you said, like, you know, it's not the same level of unbanked that you've talked about in Togo, but there is an unbanked population in the U.S. or those that are very skeptical of banking system, more skeptical of government. I mean, there's a new skepticism of government with COVID and things like that from certain, especially on the right, um, like white middle-class Americans. But historically, there's been a skepticism of, of government because of the U.S.'s history and really, really dark history. So those folks are kind of more primed to get Bitcoin. And you see that by the usage percentages. So it, it's not just like, oh, you know, there are many people in the U.S. that could utilize and need and want Bitcoin. Um, so so there's that as well. But um, I wanted to bring up one more point. You, you mentioned like particular communities and, you know, also what we try to focus on, I think these conversations are really probably some of the most important conversations um, about human rights and humanity. But also we talk a little bit about like, you know, Bitcoin's kind of cultural issue, especially in the US, right? Like very culturally, it's seen as, okay, you know, you've got to be right leaning, you've got to vote for like a Republican politician, and you're like the right person for Bitcoin or, or, or whatever. 
So for you, I know that you've talked a lot about how do we get to a more mainstream adoption of Bitcoin? And that includes incorporating women into Bitcoin as well. Um, some people will argue with me on does Bitcoin have a community or not, this and that. And that looks different globally, but um, it's still a very, just anything in finance, right? And ownership is still very like male dominated, um, white male dominated in the US, things like that. So for you, in terms of your your work, can you talk a little bit about trying to incorporate um, women into Bitcoin education and things like that? I think a lot in our audience would be keen to hear about that. It is, it is really important to have women in this space because, in fact, the fact that women have been excluded from um, finance, financial systems, and have been the most financially discriminated against through a time um, is even more reason for women in general to want a way out of, out of this system of inequality. And the reality is that Bitcoin literally, um, how do I even put it? It gives the women a fresh start to starting on a very fair ground because Bitcoin doesn't discriminate. Anybody can earn it. There is one beautiful story that I like using to illustrate how Bitcoin is powerful for women. It is the case of um, Afghanistan. There is this amazing activist called Roya from Afghanistan, uh, who should speak to if you haven't yet, um, who is a robotic engineer who started giving jobs to women, training them in robotics and computing and giving them jobs remotely in Afghanistan since 2013. She has been paying these women in Bitcoin in a country where not all women were allowed to work, in a country where because of religious fundamentalism, before a woman can work, she needs authorization from either her male relative, her father or brother, or her spouse. Um, or if, and even if she does, that male relative gets to collect her salary. That Bitcoin contributed to the financial liberation of those women is something that no other currency has been able to give us. Why? Because if she were to pay them in dollars, they will need a bank account and they will need approval from their husbands. If they were to be paid their remittances, they will have to go to a, um, a bank to collect it. They will still have to need approval from a relative. People have built systems that have been used to control women in every way, in, in prevent them from being financially independent. And Bitcoin is the one currency that was created and gave them an alternative and a way out. Bitcoin can be used in many other cases that I see as an activist who has worked supporting other activists, but also work directly with victims and survivors, especially female victims and survivors. When a victim of domestic violence needs to leave to save their life, the first thing they need is money. But the last thing they need is for the violence partner to find out they have money. I have helped victims of domestic violence in the past open bank accounts in my name so that they can save money through me to be able to get away out of those marriages where they could get killed 
I have helped victims of abuse also escape some countries in the past. And being able to do it without leaving traces is one of the most difficult aspects. And the easiest way for you to be traced usually is through money. And Bitcoin is money that is hard to trace, almost impossible. So only even in the aspects of supporting women's victims of abuse, Bitcoin is a powerful tool. We are talking about Bitcoin being a tool against dictators, but Bitcoin is even a bigger tool against victims of domestic violence and people don't talk about it. Beyond that, Bitcoin is a, a tool for women to have access to money that they couldn't in the past. It opens door for job opportunities that are global and remote for those that are interested. And it also opens opportunities to enlarge and improve their businesses and even sell to a global audience and, 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 and buying community. So Bitcoin, you know, it takes the form, it's very flexible and versatile, and it takes different forms and different shapes based on people's personal need. And that's one of the best things about it. And, it, and you know, even in the U.S., uh, it's such a global phenomenon, but even in the U.S. for for women who are in abusive marriages, one of the concerns is there's always different bills floating around, but one in the, uh, I, I don't know if it's the House or the Senate, it might be the Senate right now. There's so many different bills that are trying to address privacy and crypto. So again, saying like, well, we, we need to kind of, it's kind of like the Patriot Act, what the Patriot Act did after 9-11 in the US in terms of privacy is what they're trying to do with crypto transactions. But again, I fear not only do I think that's wrong in so many levels, but if they take that away and they re they require what in the U.S. is is know your customer laws, KYC laws, what that means is you have to present ID and a lot of platforms. If you have a retirement account and you're married, usually you have to have both, um, you know, spouses like sign on to that and let it. So if we require all of that information for Bitcoin wallets, for instance, then a woman in that situation will not be able to withdraw. Uh, or accept Bitcoin without their husband knowing, right? Uh, under this law. Now, again, the chances of these things passing, I hope are pretty slim, but things like that. These these politicians from the left who really care about these causes, I don't think they, let me give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think they think these things through when thinking about those situations. Like when you do that, you eliminate the ability for these women to to meaningfully escape if they don't have property. And so Bitcoin is property when they, there's no other property available to them. Definitely on a global scale, like Afghanistan makes sense. But I'm also saying in the US context, that could also be hugely, hugely beneficial. Um, and, and, I, and I hope at some point there'll be any politicians or staffers that will listen to this or listen to conversations that you're having or so many others and just think for a second um, before moving forward that it could affect the world. Because unfortunately, I'm not crazy about it, but a lot of these US decisions do trickle down throughout the world. And then other governments adopt similar legislation or similar policies or benefit, not benefit, but they receive money and funding from the US, similar to what you said with, with France in that relationship. Um, so I, I hope a lot of people think about all of those things. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you for this conversation. Um, I got a lot out of this and I, and I, I hope everyone listening did as well. And I, I appreciate all of your, your work and, you know, what you're doing globally and just your voice. And I'm excited to continue following along and would encourage everyone else to, to do so as well. Um, I think, you know, a lot of this conversation, obviously there's some dark threads throughout this, um, a lot of concerning things, but also at least what I'm feeling, you know, Bitcoin is a way to address some of these things. We didn't have this before. You didn't have a currency you can move around like Bitcoin and all of these different things. So that's a lot of reason to be hopeful as well, which is which is really exciting. Um, but but where can where can I send people to in terms of if they want to follow along with you, check out some of your work and resources, where should folks go to? Um, well, I invite them to discover the uh, website, the afrobitcoin.org, where about the Africa Bitcoin Conference. If they can join us in Ghana, it's from December 1st to December 3rd. Um, on, on social media, I am literally in a moment right now where I'm literally hiding, not, not hiding in terms of uh, for safety, but I'm just like slowing down for my own sanity. <laughs> so once in a while, they can find me on Twitter. Um, but um, not oh, Farida, as- I meant to, I meant to ask, um, we can talk more offline too, but um, Noster, are you familiar with Noster at yeah, all in terms of social media? I, am on Nostril. I have been on Nostril for months now. Um, I'm not very active, but it's not because of the platform. It's because I overall have been less active the past months of social media. Um, I am, I, I'm more in a, I think I'm more in a, in a position where I want to, I'm working on going back to grassroots organizing, um, fully back into grassroots organizing. And I just want to reduce the distraction from social media. So once in a while, I come online, um, but now I can go for um, maybe like, maybe check something quickly for a few minutes. That's sometimes what I do. Um, I'm not as present as I used to be. And um, for me, it's a phase um, that is very much needed. Yeah. 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 Got it. Yeah, because Nas, there's a whole nother conversation about censorship-resistant social media for a lot of these conversations we're having. So something to explore. But you're right, it's social media, and it's always good to take a step back, reprioritize, take care of yourself, all of those things. Um, excellent. So I'll make sure all of that is in the show notes. Um, anything else you wanted to mention before before I let you go? No, nothing else. Just thank you so much for the interview and uh, for your patience in rescheduling over and over again. It's so crazy. <laughs>